Chapter Nine of Ruth Erskine's Son by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sentiment and Sacrifice. The woman on the upper porch, who had come out to get her breath, had in a short time passed through so many phases of feeling as to be hardly able to recognize herself. She had lived ten days since that bulky foreign letter had seemed to change the current of her life and set it flowing, when indeed it flowed again in another channel. In truth, Ruth Erskine Burnham, as she stood there ostensibly watching the sunset, was reviewing the days in a half-frightened, half-shamefaced way. She had always, even in young girlhood, been self-controlled. Why could she not hold herself in better check, even though her world had suddenly turned to, stop, she would not say it? What had happened to her, after all, but that which fell to the lot of mothers? It was not as though some terrible calamity had overtaken her, and yet, could she have done differently if it had been? She went back in thought to that evening ten days away, and looked at herself as though she were another person looking on. She even smiled faintly at the absurdity of that foolish woman's first action, before she had finished reading the letter. She had risen suddenly and turned off the light, and pushed up every window to its highest, and rolled back the curtains, and let in a whirl of wind that had made the foreign sheets fly about as though they were things of life. Then, aided only by the firelight, she had stooped and clutched after them, and held them for a second to her breast, and then suddenly had thrown them from her with a low cry of pain. The woman on the upper porch, looking at the sunset, smiled at that half-insane woman of ten days ago, and wondered that she could have so far forgotten herself. Why should there have been any such outburst as that when Erskine was well and, and happy? She shivered a little even now over the word, and drew up her wrap closer, and told herself that as soon as the sun disappeared the chill came. Then she went back to her review, and reminded herself firmly that there had been no calamity to any one. There was nothing but joy. Erskine was not only well and happy, but he was coming home. He was coming to-night. No, she must not say he any more. They were coming. Forever and ever after this it must be they, her son and daughter. That to which she had looked forward for so many years with varying emotions had come upon her. Erskine was a married man, and to-night he was bringing home his bride. She had said over the words aloud that day, when she was quite alone, trying to make herself feel that she was speaking of her son. It was all so sudden, so utterly different from any imaginings of hers, and she thought that she had gone over in her imaginings the whole wide range of possibilities. That long letter over which she had spent a strange night believed that it was giving her the minutest particulars of this strange thing. Erskine had met the woman who was now his wife on his first evening in Paris, and from the very first had been attracted to her by his sympathy with her unprotected condition. Her only friend and companion in a strange land was a maiden aunt who was an invalid. Indeed, it was for her sake that they were lingering in France, because she was not able to travel. She had been made worse by the ocean voyage instead of better as had been hoped. Irene had been very closely confined with her for many weeks, 
and welcomed a face and voice from home as only those can understand who have themselves been cast adrift among foreigners. He had been able to do a few little things for the comfort of the invalid, and the gratitude of both ladies was almost embarrassing. They were staying at the same hotel, and as they chanced at that time to be almost the only Americans, at least the only ones belonging to their world, they naturally saw much of each other. As the aunt grew more and more feeble, and Irene became entirely dependent on him, not only for what little rest and recreation she got, which members of the same family can do for each other in a time of illness, their friendship made rapid strides. Then, when her aunt was suddenly taken alarmingly ill, and after a few days of really terrible suffering, died, leaving Irene alone in a strange land, her situation was pitiable. He would have to confess that he did not know just what she would have done, had he not been there to care for her. Of course, mother, you do not need to have me tell you that long before this I knew that I had met the one woman in all the world who could ever become my wife. The reason that I had not mentioned her in any of my letters was that I could not, even on paper, speak of her casually, as of any ordinary acquaintance, and I had no right to speak in any other way. Then, when I had the right to tell you everything, it was so near my homecoming that I determined to leave it until you and I were face to face, and I could answer all your questions and look into your dear eyes, and receive from you the sympathy that has never failed me, and I know never will. Nothing was farther from our thoughts at that time than immediate marriage. Indeed, it would have seemed preposterous to me, as it would have been under any other circumstances, to be married without your knowledge and presence. But when this unexpected blow came, I realized the almost impossibility of any other course. Although, even then, I had the greatest difficulty in persuading Irene to take such a step. She had to be convinced through some annoying experiences of the folly of her hesitation. I do not know that even you, with your long experience, realize the difference between this country and ours in matters of etiquette. Things which at home would be done as a matter of course are so unusual here as to be almost, if not quite, questionable, and the number of purely business details that loomed up to be managed by that lonely homesick girl simply appalled her. She sank under them physically, and I plainly saw that she simply must have my help and care day and night. Why, even the nurse who had attended her aunt deserted us. That is, she was summoned away by telegraph. In short, Mamma, there was literally no other course for us than the one we took, although it had to be taken at the sacrifice of a good deal of sentiment on the part of both. It is a continual relief to me to remember that I am writing to a sane and reasonable woman, who is in the habit of weighing questions carefully, and who, when she decides that a thing is right, does it without regard to sentiment or adverse opinion. But, oh, Mommy, it was hard not to have you with us. There was more in the letter, much more. Erskine had exhausted language, and repeated himself again and again in his effort to make everything very clear and convincing. He had been skillful also in his attempt to make his mother see the woman of his choice with his eyes. She will appeal to your sympathies, Mamma, he had written. 
although she is so young, barely twenty-six, she has been through much trouble and sorrow. She is an orphan, and has been for four years a widow. I need hardly add that her short married life was unhappy, and so sad that she can scarcely speak of that year even to me. Of course it is an experience that I shall do my utmost to make her forget, and I need not ask of it again. I wanted you to know, dear mother, that you and I have much to make up to her. She was made fatherless and motherless in a single day, when she was a child of sixteen. I like to think of what you will be to her, dearest mother, a revelation I am sure of mother love, for besides being so young when she lost hers, there are mothers, and mothers you know, and I am sure Irene does not understand it very well. Do you know she is half afraid of you? She has read a few of your letters, and has caught an idea of what we are to each other, and talks mournfully about coming between us, as though any one ever could. I have assured her that I am simply bringing to you the daughter for whom your heart has always longed. It was at that point that Ruth Burnham had flung the sheets away from her and buried her face in her hands. But ten days had passed since then, and she had long known, by heart, all that that letter could tell her. And now, in less than another hour, they would be at home, her son and daughter. She had not gone to New York to meet the incoming steamer, as had been arranged, or rather as it had once arranged itself, quite as a matter of course. Think how delightful it will be when you stand on the dock watching the incoming steamer, and straining your eyes to discover which frantically waved handkerchief is mine. This is what Erskine had said as he gave her one of her good-bye kisses. She had replied that she would recognize his handkerchief among a thousand. In the earlier letters much had been said about that homecoming, and elaborate plans had been made as to what they would do together in New York. But in that last long letter, on the margin of the last page, as though it had been an afterthought, were these words. On the whole, mother, we believe that it would be better for you not to try to meet us in New York. Irene has no love for that city. It was the scene of some of her sorrows. She wants to stop there only long enough to call upon her cousins, and we are both in such frantic haste to be at home that we shall make the delay as short as possible. So we think it would be less fatiguing to you to avoid that trip and be at home to welcome us. Ruth said over that sentence as she stood on that upper veranda waiting to welcome them. She had said it a hundred times before. What was there about it that jarred? She could not have told in words, yet the jar was there. Could it be that continually recurring we? Was she going to be a jealous woman with all the rest? So meanly jealous as that? God forbid! She said the words aloud and solemnly. She knew that she needed the help of God in this crisis of her life. Since the news of it came to her, she had spent hours on her knees seeking his strength. She wanted Erskine to say we, and think we, and to be supremely happy, not only in his married life, but to have that life all it could be to two souls. And yet, would it have been wrong for him, in that first letter, to have remembered that she had been used all his life to being the we of his thoughts, and to have said simply I once or twice? 
Of course she could never any more be dearest, his special name for her. But was he never again for a little while to be just himself to her? And must she learn to think they and never him? Oh, she didn't mean any of this, she told herself nervously, and she must get her thoughts away at once. Of course she would say, Erskine and Irene, now, always, and forever. Or should she put it Irene and Erskine? Could she? Perhaps that would help. Did other mothers, waiting for the homecoming of their married sons, have such strange thoughts as haunted her? There was Mrs. Adams, for instance, whose three sons had all been married within a few years, and Mrs. Adams had not seemed to care. Well, as to that, neither would she seem to, and she drew herself up instinctively. But Mrs. Adams had four boys, five indeed, the youngest of them was almost as tall as his mother, while she, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. The words seemed to repeat themselves in her brain like a dull undertone refrain. Other words that had nothing whatever to do with the situation, but that had been familiar to her girlhood, came back and stupidly repeated themselves. Dead! One of them shot by the sea in the east! But that was wildness and utter folly. Erskine would be ashamed of her, and with reason, could he know, which he never should, that such fancies had been tolerated for a moment. Outwardly, Mrs. Burnham was irreproachable. So was her home. In the ten days following that letter, she had given time and thought to its adorning. She was a model housekeeper, and to have Erskine's rooms always in spotless order had been one of her pleasures. But they had been very thoroughly gone over, and wherever it was possible to add a touch of beauty, it had been done. Already she had drawn the shades and lighted up brilliantly, for at this season the twilights were very brief. She had paused, on her way to the veranda, to take a final critical survey, and had just told herself that she did not know how to make an added touch. And then she went swiftly to her own room, and brought therefrom a vase of roses, and set them on the dressing-table of the bride. The vase was a costly trifle that Erskine had brought her just before he went abroad, and the roses were his special favorites. She had kept that vase filled with them on her table ever since she reached home. For herself she was dressed in white, Erskine's favorite home dress for her summer and winter. Indeed, he was almost absurd about it, never quite liking to see her in any other attire. "'I suppose you will want me to dress in white when I am eighty, she had said to him once, laughingly. His reply had been quick. "'Of course I shall.' what could be more appropriate for a beautiful old lady? You will be beautiful, dearest, but I cannot think that you will ever be old. So on this evening, although she had taken down a black silk and looked at it wistfully, she had resolutely hung it away again and brought out a white cashmere richly trimmed with white silk. This was a festive evening, and she must honor it with one of her prettiest dresses." All at once as she stood there, waiting, her heart seemed for a moment to stop its beating. She clutched at the railing to prevent her falling, and made a stern and effectual protest. "'This is ridiculous. I will not faint, and I shall do nothing to mar his homecoming, or to give him occasion to be ashamed of me.' 
but she stood still, although the carriage that had gone to the station to meet the bridal party was whirling around the corner, was turning in at the carriage drive, was stopping before the door. They were getting out. They were on the porch. They were in the hall. She could hear her son's voice. Where is my mother? And she was not there as she had meant to be to welcome them. She was still on the upper veranda, steadying herself by the railing, and feeling it impossible to take a single step. End of chapter 9